Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast. Today's episode focuses on marriage and the Eucharist, featuring Christopher West, one of the most prominent speakers on Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Marriage is at the heart of family and all civilization. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian mystical life. Today, you'll find out how these two profound realities are related in this surprising and often jolting presentation. Christopher West will have you on the edge of your seat with his humor, insight, and unbridled energy, along with his genuine love of faith and family. But first, if you ever considered becoming a Catholic or are a Catholic seeking to deepen your relationship with Christ, please visit us at catholiccity.com to order our Catholic scapulars, books, booklets, relic prayer medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's twice-a-month Catholic City email message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, catholiccity.com, which is the online home of the Mary Foundation. Since the dawn of the internet, we've been a world leader in delivering proven, free, or low-cost tools for evangelization right to your door. And now, let's begin. Good afternoon, everyone. We are here to talk about God's plan for making us male and female, and for calling man and woman to that intimate embrace that the Bible describes as the union of the two in one flesh. God knows our world is very confused about the meaning of masculinity and femininity and about the meaning of the sexual union. And our Pope, John Paul II, realizing how deeply confused our society is, and understanding that this confusion is really at the root of our culture's problems, devoted the first five years of his pontificate from 1979 through 1984 to developing what is called a theology of the body. John Paul II, in these 129 homilies that he delivered over five years, presented a revolution for the church in her understanding of the meaning of the body, sexuality, and marriage. And the reason he devoted the first five years of his pontificate to this issue is because he knew if we don't understand the meaning of sexuality, we will never be able to build a culture of, a, of true human life. The Pope often speaks of the culture of life and contrasts this with the culture of death. And when the Pope uses the phrase, the culture of death, this is not merely an idea to him. This is something that is very concrete and real. Because this is a man who, in his earlier years in Poland, lived under the Nazi occupation. He lived with the stench of the burning bodies of his friends and countrymen hovering in the air from nearby Auschwitz. He would have been sent there too had his underground seminary studies been discovered. After the Nazis left, in marched the communists. So he lived under the tyranny of communism for 30 years before he became pope and was sent to Rome. He lived and was formed in this crucible of death and degradation and tyranny. And it forced him to ask the deepest questions about the meaning of life, and how can there be evil in the world? Why is it, what is it that can lead the human being who has been bestowed with a godlike dignity 
to drink from the dregs of raw evil. Many people in our country are asking these questions in light of September 11th. Our own experience with raw evil. Do you know what in the mind of Pope John Paul II is the root of the problem of evil? Do you know what is the first event in the chain reaction that unleashes evil in the world? Our rejection of God's plan for life and love that is stamped in our bodies as male and female. The Pope speaks of a theology of the body because he says the body is in some sense a sacrament. What's a sacrament? In the strict sense, we speak of the seven sacraments, and these are physical signs that reveal and communicate to us spiritual realities. In a broader sense, we can use the word sacrament, you might say with a small s, as an understanding that the whole physical world, the whole physical creation, reveals something of the glory of God, something of the spiritual nature of God. We can understand this when we look at a sunset and we are drawn to contemplate the mystery of God through the beauty of a sunset. You know what it's like looking at the universe, looking at the stars and contemplating the majesty of God. Well, do you know what is more beautiful than a starlit night or a sunset? Do you know what is meant to communicate to us more than anything in God's creation, the invisible mystery of God? Man created as male and female in the image and likeness of God. We are the crown of creation. And if we have the eyes to see it, stamped right in our bodies as male and female is the invisible mystery of God made visible for us. The Pope puts it this way. He says the body and it alone is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. Think about it. You know that I'm up here right now because you see my body, you hear my voice. It is through your body that you encounter my body, and through our bodies we make visible the spiritual mystery that we are. Human beings are spiritual creatures, but not only spiritual creatures. We are at one and the same time physical creatures, and it is the physical part of us that makes visible the invisible. But not only does the human body make visible the spiritual mystery of, of who we are as persons, but because we are made in the image of God, our bodies also make visible something of the invisible mystery of God. What is it that we make visible? What is the invisible mystery of God? If you could put God in one word, what would it be? God is Love. We often think that God is love because He loves us. That's part of it. But God is love in the very relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, for all eternity, is a living exchange of love. Think about it. In order for love to be love, you have to have one who loves, one who is loved, and the relationship they share, which is one of love. 
That's precisely what the mystery of the Trinity is. The Father from all eternity is giving Himself to the Son. He is the one who loves. The Son, as we read in the New Testament, is the beloved one of the Father. He is the one who is loved by the Father and in turn gives Himself back to the Father in an eternal exchange of love. And the very love that they share is so real that it is another eternal person. As we say in the Creed, we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so the Pope brings a dramatic development of thinking to the Catholic Church in his theology of the body about the manner in which we image God. Traditionally, theologians have said we image God as individuals through our rational soul, through our memory, our understanding, our will, our ability to choose freely. That is certainly true. The Pope is not saying that's wrong. He's saying, yes, we image God as individuals in our spiritual reality. But he takes it a step further and he says, we also image God not only as individuals, but in that communion of man and woman which God created right from the beginning. The union of man and woman in the intimacy of the marital embrace itself is meant to form us in the image of this eternal exchange of the Trinity. The sexual union itself properly understood and granted the way we're raised in our culture, many of us, most of us, don't understand it properly. The sexual union as God created it to be is meant to be an icon, you might say, or a symbol of the very inner life of God. This is the new development that the Pope brings to us. Understanding the communion of man and woman itself as a symbol of the inner life of the Trinity. We are made in the image of God precisely as male and female and in our call to be fruitful and multiply. God's eternal plan of love is that we would share in the inner life of the Trinity. And how does He reveal this? God wants to show us this. He wants to make it real to us. How does He make it real to us? He stamps an image of His own love and communion right in our bodies as male and female. Now, the Scriptures, from beginning to end, they use lots of analogies to talk about God's love for us. The only way we can understand the infinite mystery of God's love is to put it in human language, to put it in human symbols, so that we can chew on it a little bit and make, un make sense out of it. There are lots of analogies the Bible use, uses to help us make sense out of God's love for us. But do you know what the most widely used analogy in the Bible is? Do you know what the most favored analogy is of the greatest mystics in the church? It's not father-son, it's not vine and branches, it's not the shepherd and the sheep. What is it? Husband and wife, the bridegroom and the bride. In fact, the Bible from beginning to end is a story about a marriage. It begins with the creation of man and woman and their call to become one flesh. And throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of his love for his people as the love of a husband for his bride. In the New Testament, 
The love of the eternal bridegroom is literally embodied when the Word becomes flesh. Christ comes as the eternal bridegroom to give up His body for His bride so that we might become one flesh with Him. St. Paul himself says this in Ephesians chapter 5. He quotes from the book of Genesis. And he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his bride and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds, this is a profound mystery. How many of you have ever thought of the one flesh union as a profound mystery? In our culture, we tend to reduce it just to the level of biology. Well, you get this urge and you want to relieve it. What's what's so profoundly mysterious about that? Ah, the biblical vision demonstrates to us that the one flesh union, this profound mystery, is a sacramental symbol of what? What does St. Paul, this is a profound, what does he say? This is a profound mystery and it refers to Christ and the church. Every longing we have for intimacy and union with another is simply a shadow or a foreshadowing of the ultimate union for which we all long, which is the union of God with all humanity revealed in the union of Christ and the church. Think about it. How are we to make sense out of what St. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5? That the one flesh union, a man leaves father, mother, clings to his bride, they become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. How, how do we make sense out of that? This is what we're going to try to unpack here today. The intimacy of married life itself is meant to be a sign that points us to Christ's union with the church. Think about it. Christ is the one who left his father. He left his father in heaven. He left his mother on earth to give up his body for his bride so that we, the bride of Christ, might become one flesh with him. Where do we become one flesh with Christ? In the Eucharist. Let me read some familiar words to us all, I'm sure. The day before he suffered, he took bread in his sacred hands and looking up to heaven, to you, his almighty father, he gave you thanks and praise. He broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. Christ giving up his body for his bride so that we, the bride of Christ, might become one flesh with him. I never met my father-in-law. He died when my wife was a young girl. But I know a story about him that tells me about his character and his profound relationship 
with Christ and with his wife. The day after they got married, and just to give you a little context here, they actually met in the 60s, in the turbulent 60s, the sexual revolution is in full swing, and they met in the 60s at a debate about whether or not the church should change her teaching on contraception. And Wendy's father sided with, no, there shouldn't be a change, and Wendy's mother-to-be said there should be a change. So they met kind of at a feisty debate, and they were on different sides of the issue. I don't know how it all came to pass that they actually got married. But ultimately, Wendy's mother was converted by his great love on that issue. And we'll talk more about that issue because I think in many ways it's right at the heart and center of it. And indeed, that whole contraception thing almost caused me to leave the Catholic Church about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And now I'm devoting my life to trying to help people understand these issues. Shows you what grace can do if you open your heart to it. Anyway, they got married in the late 60s, uh, maybe mid-60s, and they saved sex for marriage. They consummated their marriage on their wedding night. The next day was Sunday. They went to Mass. And after communion, Wendy's father was back in his pew crying. Just had his head down, crying. And after the Mass, Wendy's mom said to him, Why were you crying? And he said, For the first time in my life, I understood those words, This is my body given up for you. This is what marital love is meant to express. The Pope himself says that the sign of marital love in all of married life is a sign, but the Pope says that this sign becomes most evident when the spouses make themselves one flesh. You might say that sexual union, the consummate union of marriage, is, is a sign of the sign of married love. All of married love is a sign and a gift. But there is an expression of marital love that consummates the whole reality of marriage, and that is the one flesh union. And our Pope says that this sign of marital love is a constant reminder to the whole church of what happened on the cross. Where Jesus gave up his body for his bride. And so we live this reality of self-giving love, of giving our bodies for one another in all of married life, but in a very particular way when the two become one flesh. It is Eucharistic. And so our Pope, using this analogy, and, and while I'm on this saying it's an analogy, let me just clarify so we don't get confused about what I, I'm saying or might not be saying or some might you think I'm saying up here, which I'm actually not. Let's talk about the nature of an analogy. When we say that spousal love is an analogy for understanding Christ's love for us, and when we even say that the one flesh union itself is a sign or an analogy that helps us understand God's love for us, we are not saying that God is therefore sexual. 
When we say that we are made in the image and likeness of God as male and female, and even that the intimacy of the marital embrace itself forms us in the image of God, we are not saying that God is made in our image. We are saying that we are made in His image. The Catechism says that in no way is God made in man's image. God is not male or female. There is no place in God for the difference of the sexes. Yet the Catechism adds that, nonetheless, the perfections of man and woman reveal something of the perfection of the infinite God. So keep that in mind. When we use this analogy, we have to keep in mind that all analogies ultimately break down and they limp. There's a similarity when we speak of an analogy, but there's always a greater dissimilarity. And if we don't keep that in mind, we will end up thinking that, that the Eucharist is somehow some sexual thing. It is only, quote, sexual in an, in an analogical way, using an analogy. It is the consummation, you might say, of a mystical marriage. And we use that word mystical to, to put a little qualifier in here that this is mysterious stuff and we, we can't pin it down. But using this great analogy, the Pope himself says that the Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. He even says that Christ in instituting the Eucharist, in some way wish to demonstrate to us the meaning of masculinity and femininity. What is that meaning? Why are you male or female? Think about it. A guy's body, his masculine body, which is not merely a biological thing, the body reveals the deep spiritual reality of the person, right? So our Pope says that sexuality is not merely biological. It concerns the innermost being of the human person. But guys, have you ever wondered, standing in a shower, why, God, did you make me this way? A man's body, his masculinity, doesn't make sense by itself. Ladies, you can ask the same question. Why, God, did you make me this way? A woman's femininity does not make sense by itself. But seen in light of each other, we see a call to holy communion. And this is why the Pope says that the Eucharist was instituted by Christ to reveal to us the meaning of masculinity and femininity. What is the Eucharist? It is holy communion with Christ the Bridegroom. It is the sacrament of the Bridegroom and the Bride. Christ, at the Last Supper, sharing His final words, His final thoughts with His disciples before He gives His body up for His Bride, says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says, Abide in my love and love one another as I have loved you. 
this call to love as God loves, as Christ loves, is the very meaning of life. We cannot find happiness. We cannot find what we're looking for until we learn what it means to love as God loves. As our Pope says, life is senseless unless we discover love. Every human being is looking for God, whether he knows it or not, because every human being is looking for love, and God is love. And this call to love, love one another as I have loved you, is precisely what is stamped in the nuptial meaning of our bodies. But let's look at this progression of what Jesus' words teach us. There's a basic principle that is at the root of everything I'm, I'm holding out here to you today. If the meaning of life is to love as God loves, and we can't find happiness unless we love as God loves, and the loving as God loves is what our sexuality is all about, this is what is stamped in our bodies, the basic principle we must come to terms with is that you cannot give what you do not have. If the love of God is not abiding in your heart, you will not be able to share that love with others. Impossible to give what you don't have. Listen to these pro the progression of Christ's words once again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The reason Jesus is able to love us as He does in this total gift of His body for His bride, is because His heart was fully alive with the love of the Father. Jesus is pouring out on the cross precisely the love of the Father that has been poured into Him from all eternity. And so before Jesus gives us the commandment to go and love as He loves, what does He say to us first? Abide in my love. In other words, receive my love as a gift. Live in this love as a gift. This is where we become the bride of Christ. This is where we must open to receive the gift of our bridegroom into us so that we can give that same gift to others. This is why we are bride and not bridegroom in relationship to Christ using this analogy. Why? What do we see stamped into the nuptial meaning of the woman's body? Receptivity. The call to receive the gift. But this is not passivity. Woman opens to receive the gift in order to conceive that gift and then to bear it forth to the world. We are called, every one of us, male and female, we are called to be in this position of receptivity, of bride, so that we can receive the gift of God, conceive the gift of God, and bear it forth to the world. And indeed, there was a woman who walked this planet, who opened her very body so profoundly to the very gift of God that she conceived eternal life in her womb. Who? Mary, the woman, the mother of God. This is why we call Mary our model and our hope, because she shows the whole human race, men and women, what it means to be human, to open to receive the love of God so that we can then share that love with others. Because you cannot give what you do not have. 
We must abide in Christ's love if we are to discover the meaning of life and if we are to live the truth of self-giving in our bodies. And obviously, this is not just for married people. What we are talking about when we talk about sexuality is the very meaning of human existence. We're talking about the call to love as God loves that is stamped in our bodies. And marriage is not the only way to live this out. You might say it's the most obvious way or the most fundamental way, but it's not the only way. In fact, Christ will call some to sacrifice married life. Why? What does Jesus say? Some sacrifice marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's the eternal marriage of Christ and the church. The celibate person is not rejecting his sexuality. The celibate person is not rejecting the call to married love. He's devoting every desire for love and for union on the ultimate marriage of Christ and the church. And so these, how many consecrated celibates do we have here? Two consecrated, and nobody else consecrated celibate. These consecrated celibate men declare to us that the ultimate desire for union cannot be fulfilled in this life. Marriage is only a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the greater marriage to come. What we're talking about here is the very meaning of human existence, not just about married life. Obviously, it has some pretty practical applications in married life. But our Pope says in his theology of the body that what we learn in understanding the, these truths of Ephesians 5 that we're going to still be unpacking here today is obviously important with regard to the Christian vocation of marriage. But he adds, it is equally important and essential for understanding man in general. In fact, it is essential, he says, for us to comprehend the very meaning of our being and existence. The reason we exist is because we are called to union with one another and with God. And this is what heaven will be. The, again, using this as an analogy, it's beyond our comprehension. But in heaven, the eternal union, the eternal marriage will be fulfilled when Christ gives himself totally to the church and we, the body of Christ, His one bride, give ourselves totally to Him. No one is excluded from the marriage of the Lamb. And I often say to, to single people who understandably, and you might, you might say, oh yeah, that's easy for you to say, you're married. I will be the first person to extol the true joys of married love. I love my wife, Wendy, more than you can ever imagine. But she and I always have to keep in mind, lest we become guilty of idolatry, we must realize that we are not one another's ultimate fulfillment. We are only a sign, a foretaste of our ultimate fulfillment to one another. And so I often say to young people, do not hang your hat on a hook that cannot bear the weight if you're looking for your ultimate fulfillment in another human being, you will crush that other human being. 
no human being can bear the weight of another's desire for ultimate fulfillment. We can point the way, we can be a foreshadowing, but that's it. Let me bring my reflections back on track. We're talking about Christ in the sermon, or excuse me, in the Last Supper, giving us the great commandment to love as He loves. But in order to love as He loves, we must first abide in His love. How do we abide in Christ's love? We gotta get this one right, because if the meaning of life is to love as God loves, and you can't give what you don't have, and so we have to abide in Christ's love in order to love as God loves, and if we don't love as God loves, we don't discover the meaning of life, but if we do love as God loves, we discover the very meaning of our being in existence. Anybody repeat what I just said? I'm not even sure I could repeat what I just said, but we must understand what it means to abide in Christ's love. Do you think Christ is going to leave us hanging? How do we abide in his love? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The commandments, the teachings of the church, specifically about sexuality, that's what we're talking about here today anyway, these commandments are not given for our misery. They are given so that God's joy might be in us and our joy might be complete. Jesus says to love as he loves so that his love might abide in us and so that our joy might be complete. This is what all the questions of sexual morality come down to. Does this given behavior, does this given action, does it truly image God? Does it truly participate in the love of God? Or does it not? If it doesn't participate in the love of God, it can never bring us the happiness we're looking for. It is a cheap counterfeit. If I had a million dollar bill sitting here and a counterfeit million dollar bill sitting here, which one would you want? Obviously, stupid question. But what if you were raised in a culture that incessantly bombarded you with propaganda that convinced you the counterfeit was the real thing and the real thing was the counterfeit? Would you be duped? Chances are, like the rest of culture, which a bunch of sheep following the media, you'd be duped. We have been lied to again and again and again about the meaning of our bodies and about the path to happiness. There is one path to happiness, to learn to love as God loves. And this is expressed in a very particular way in marriage when the two become one flesh. The Pope summarizes this commandment of Jesus about loving as he loves as follows. Quoting from the Second Vatican Council, which he does again and again and again and again, he says, man, and he means male and female, the human being, man cannot find himself except through the sincere gift of himself. Jesus says it this way, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life, in other words, if you give it away, you will find it. To love as God loves means to be a sincere gift to one another. And then our Pope says this, Every man and every woman 
fully realizes himself or herself through the sincere gift of self. For spouses, the moment of conjugal union constitutes a very particular expression of this. It is in this moment that a man and a woman become a mutual gift to each other. Marital intercourse, as I've been trying to explain, is sacramental. Or at least it's meant to be. The Pope says the sacrament, including the sacrament of marriage, consists in the manifesting of the eternal mystery of God in a sign. A sign that serves not only to proclaim the mystery of God, but also to accomplish that in us. Couple questions. What's the mystery of God? If we can put it in a word, God is love. And so there is a sign in married life that not only symbolizes this eternal love of God, but is also meant to accomplish that love within us. And as I said earlier, all of married life, the whole reality of married life is this sign. Taking out the garbage is meant to be a sign of married love. It's meant to be a sign of God's love. Doing the dishes, changing the diapers. These are all things part of married life and they all are meant to participate in the love of God. But there is one particular expression of married love that consummates that sign. And we know what that is. And so our Pope says, all of married life is a gift. But this becomes most evident when the spouses bring about that encounter which makes them one flesh. In this way, sexual union, properly understood, enables us to participate in the very life of God. The Pope himself says, I mean, so many people think this guy is some kind of prude. He says that the marital embrace itself, including the, the, as he says it, the consciousness of the gratification of the sexual embrace, the marital embrace. This is meant to be a participation in life in the Holy Spirit. That means the marital embrace itself is meant to enable us to participate in the inner life of the Trinity. Have you ever heard Dr. Ruth describe it that way? <laughs> so often, our notion of sex is down here in the gutter. It could not be any more glorious and beautiful as God created it to be. But why does it become so confused? Why does it become so distorted? If you were the devil, what would you attack? You want to know what is most valuable in this life? What is most beautiful in this life? All you have to do is look to that which is most violently profaned and degraded. That's what Satan is going to attack. Tragically, so many Christians throughout history, in, in light of all of these distortions, we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. We have seen the gross distortions of, of society and what it teaches about sex, but then we run the other way. But if that is our response... We have not overcome the lies of the devil. We have fallen for them. Satan is the great plagiarizer. 
He takes what God creates to be true, good, and beautiful, and he uses it, he plagiarizes it, he distorts it, he counterfeits it for his own purposes. The Pope's theology of the body is a clarion call for us to reclaim what Satan has plagiarized. How many of you knew that sex is inherently Catholic? The sexual love of man and woman is one of the sacraments of the Catholic Church. I'm not making this up. (laughs) Marriage is the sacrament of sexual love. And I don't mean merely of the sexual act. I mean the love of man and woman, of male and female. That's what the word sex means, male and female. Sex is not for something you do. That's a, that's a modern use of the word. A hundred years ago, if you would have told somebody you were having sex, they would have been, you're having your own maleness? You're, what are you, what are you, what are you having? I mean, this is a modern use of the word. I mean, we still have vestiges of the proper use of this word. When you fill out a job application and it says sex on it, you don't say, none of your business. You say male or female. That's what we mean. Marriage is the sacrament of sexual love. The love of man and woman. And of course, we're talking also of that consummate expression. In fact, sexual union itself, as I've been trying to demonstrate, is meant to express the very love of God himself. But now we have to ask a very important question. How does God love? Jesus says, love as I have loved you. That's the meaning of life. Well, what kind of love is that? How do we know it's the real thing? I like to summarize God's love with four basic qualities. We could attack this in different ways. Attack this, I don't know if that's the right word. Explain this in different ways. But here's how I explain God's love. Four basic qualities. Number one, and we see this all fulfilled right here on the cross and in turn in the Eucharist. I want to continue to bring this back to the Eucharist because there is the full meaning of love revealed in the Eucharist. We see in Christ's gift on the cross that his love, number one, is free. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. We know for love to be love, it has to be free. Husbands, when you propose to your wife, did you put a gun to her head and say, if you say no, it's over, you're dead? Would that be authentic love if she said so only under duress? No, it has to be freely given. They do not take my life from me, I lay it down freely. If love is to be love and to image God, It must be free and it must be total. Or you might say unconditional, without any reservation whatsoever. Jesus gives us everything that He is. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. All that He is, He gives to us. He says to His disciples in the upper room, I have loved you to the last. Everything that I am, I give to you. All that the Father has given to me, I have given to you. It must be free. It must be total. It must be faithful. 
I am with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Yahweh says to his people, I have espoused myself to you forever. In fidelity, I have loved you. If our love is to image God's love, and if we are to fulfill the meaning of life, our love must be free. It must be total. It must be faithful. And there is one other quality that I'd like to talk about. It must be life-giving, fruitful. Christ said, I came into the world so that my bride might have life and have it to the full. Free, total, faithful, fruitful love. This is what the Eucharist is. I give myself to you freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. You know what another name for free, total, faithful, fruitful love is? Marriage. Free, total, faithful, fruitful love. This is exactly what a man and a woman commit to at the altar. At the altar. The priest or the deacon asks us several questions. They're called the questions of the intention to marry. The priest or deacon says to the couple at the altar, very first question, have you come here freely? And without any reservation to give yourself to each other in marriage. The couple says, we have. The priest or deacon then asks them, do you promise to be faithful until death? They say, we do. The priest or deacon then asks them, do you promise to receive children lovingly from God? They say, we do. Free, total, faithful, fruitful love. That is what the wedding vows are a commitment to. In other words, the wedding vows are the commitment to love your spouse as God loves. It is the commitment to fulfill the very meaning of your being and existence by loving the other as Christ loves. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love and love one another as I have loved you. Marriage is meant to be a specific fulfillment of this great commandment. And here's the kicker. Do you know where this free, total, faithful, fruitful love is meant to be expressed most concretely? When the two become one flesh. Sexual union, we could say, is where the words of the wedding vows become flesh. Just as the Word, who is free, total, faithful, fruitful love, became flesh, so, when husband and wife become one flesh, the words of their wedding vows, which is, I love you freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully, become flesh. The Pope expresses it this way. Indeed, the very words, I take you to be my wife or my husband, can be fulfilled only by means of conjugal intercourse. He says that the body possesses a language a language that proclaims the mystery of God's love. We all know that the body has a language. We Look at me. I'm a, my body is speaking. Even without my words, you know I'm communicating to you with my body. My body speaks without even opening my mouth. 
Listen to how the Pope expresses it. And embrace yourselves here. This guy is not approved. Let me read to you what our Holy Father says. This is a, a paraphrase, but condensing what he says. The spouses, man and woman, they are the ministers of the sacrament of marriage. And through exchanging those vows and then consummating those vows, the Pope says, through this conjugal union, man and woman are called to express the mysterious language of their bodies in all their truth. Through gestures and reactions, through the whole dynamism of tension and enjoyment, through the spouse's bodily actions and interactions, through all of this, man and woman speak. You thought it was warm in here before. Woo. And precisely on the level of this language of the body, husband and wife mutually express themselves to one another in the fullest and the most profound way possible for them. Wow. And this language of the body is Eucharistic. The Pope says it this way, speaking of the Eucharistic character of the marital embrace and of marriage as a whole. He says the visible sign of marriage, in as much as it is linked to the visible sign of Christ's union with the church, and here he's, he's doing what St. Paul did. He's quoting from St. Paul. St. Paul is the one who linked the one flesh union of husband and wife with the union of Christ and the church. So John Paul is saying, inasmuch as these two unions are linked together, God's eternal plan of love becomes manifested in the world. And in this way, that marital union is the foundation of the whole sacramental order. What's the sacramental order? That's a, just a kind of theological phrase. What does that mean? The sacramental order is the way God makes his mystery visible to us. We can't see God, right? He's pure spirit. But God wants to make himself visible to us. This is what Christian revelation is. It's God making himself visible. How does he do it? The Pope says, the mystery of God is made visible specifically through the human body, through the mystery of male and female and also through their call to conjugal union. This is the sense in which we can understand marital union as Eucharistic. Let's compare the two. The Eucharist is the union in the flesh of Christ and the church. The marital embrace is the union in the flesh of husband and wife. The Eucharist is the sign of the new covenant. The marital embrace is the sign of the covenant of marriage. The Eucharist consummates the union of Christ and the church sacramentally. The marital embrace consummates the sacrament of marriage. The Eucharist is the living out of our baptismal promises. The marital embrace is the living out of our wedding vows. I give myself to you freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. The Eucharist is the summit of our union with Christ, the source and summit of the Christian life. 
If we receive the Eucharist worthily, it bears fruit in the whole reality of our Christian lives. However, if we receive the Eucharist unworthily, St. Paul says we eat and drink our own condemnation. It's very similar with the marital embrace. It is the summit of the union of man and woman. If man and woman receive one another, husband and wife, worthily, this union bears fruit in the whole reality of their lives, like a stone thrown into a pond. You get the ripple effect. But if man and woman receive one another unworthily, that also gives a ripple effect. That union will become the source, subtle or maybe not so subtle, that undermines the whole reality of their marriage. The Eucharist is a prayer of thanksgiving and praise to the Father. Marital intercourse is meant to be the same. A prayer. An offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice. St. Paul talks about this. Maybe in this instant he's not specifically applying it to the marital embrace, but we can. St. Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And he adds, this is your spiritual act of worship. The way we worship God in spirit and truth is with our bodies. And the marital embrace is a particular way we do this as husband and wife. It's meant to be a prayer of thanksgiving. But how often do you hear things like, why doesn't the church just stay out of my bedroom? If you're a baptized Christian, you are bringing the church with you into the bedroom. Every time you consummate your marriage, you're meant to be becoming a symbol of the very love of Christ for the church. You cannot escape it. If we have this idea that sex will be better if we keep God out of the picture, how can sex be better if the very source of love is not welcome there? Can it possibly be an act of love if we don't want God to be part of it? It can only be a cheap counterfeit. This is what all the church is teaching about sexual morality is all about. It's about speaking the language of the body in truth. If we can speak with our bodies the truth, we can also speak lies because God has given us freedom. We all know it's possible to speak a lie with the body. Suppose you buy a used car. The salesman knows he sold you a lemon. He looks you in the eye and he shakes your hand. It's a lie. A lie with the body. What about the kiss of Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane? It was a lie. It was a lie with the body. All sexual morality comes down to the question of are you speaking the language of your body truthfully? And the Pope even goes so far as to say that the language of the body is meant to be prophetic. Why? What's a prophet? A prophet is one who proclaims the mystery of God in human language. This is what sexual union is meant to do. Proclaim the mystery of God's free, total, faithful, fruitful love in human language. But, as the Pope points out, we must be very careful to distinguish between true and false prophets. Let me ask you this. 
If you're not married, maybe you hope to be married one day. If you're a consecrated celibate, you can apply this to the vows that you made when you became a consecrated celibate. How many of you want to be faithful to your wedding vows? Please raise your hand. No matter how hard it's going to be to be faithful to your wedding vows, do you still want to be faithful to your wedding vows? Please raise your hand. Okay. No matter how much sacrifice, no matter how much reorienting the way you think and feel about things, you still want to be faithful to your wedding vows. Please raise your hand. Can you think of anything at all that would justify being unfaithful to your wedding vows? Even once. Let me ask you this. How healthy do you think a marriage would be if a husband and wife were continually unfaithful to their wedding vows? How healthy would that marriage be? Yeah, the pits, I think, on the roads to ruins. We could all recognize that. How healthy do you think a marriage would be, on the other hand, if a husband and wife were absolutely committed unconditionally to being faithful to their vows, and in fact, on a regular basis, they renewed their vows, and every time they renewed their vows, they were more committed to them on that day than they were the day before. How healthy do you think that marriage would be? At least on the right path. This is what is at stake in the church's teaching on sexual morality. Because the church's teaching on sexual morality is a call for sexual union to be what it's meant to be, a renewal of the wedding vows. The Pope describes it this way in his book, Love and Responsibility. He says that the effort of the spouses to make their union a true union of persons, and we could add a a true renewal of the wedding vows, because that's what the renewal of the wedding vows does. It affords the true union of man and woman. The effort to make their sexual union, the true renewal of wedding vows, is the internal problem of every marriage. We all know it's possible to speak a lie with the body. Who do you think it is that wants men and women to speak lies with their bodies? Could it be... For you uh, older generation, you might wonder what the heck I'm doing up here. You have to watch Saturday Night Live like late 80s, early 90s. and Church lady. Could it be Satan? Is it not the father of lies who wants us to speak lies with our bodies? Let's ask some questions. All we have to do to determine the morality of sexual behavior is ask, is this a true renewal of wedding vows? Is this free, total, faithful, fruitful love, or is it not? Is an act of child abuse, child molestation, is this an act of free, total, faithful, fruitful love, or is it not? Is an act of rape a free, total, faithful, fruitful love act of love or not? Does it image God's love or does it not? Does an act of masturbation image God's free, total, faithful, fruitful love, or does it not? Does a one-night stand image God's free, total, faithful, fruitful love, or does it not? Now we can see that some of these behaviors maybe get a little closer than others. But let's be honest with ourselves. Does an engaged couple having sex, does this act image God's free, total, faithful, fruitful love, or does it not? It makes sense why you shouldn't be having sex before marriage if we understand sex as a renewal of the wedding vows. You don't have any wedding vows to renew. 
You're saying something with your body that isn't true. And so I think it's much more helpful not to talk about the difference between premarital sex and postmarital sex, as if, okay, we got our certificate now, now we can do it. No, it's much better to talk about non-marital sex versus marital sex. It is impossible for unmarried people to have marital sex. Marriage is an absolute prerequisite to have marital sex. But it is no guarantee. Because even married people can have non-marital sex. And in this way, when they do have non-marital sex, they are not renewing their wedding vows. They are being unfaithful to their wedding vows. Marriage is not a magic trick that suddenly makes it okay. If a husband and wife are just going through the motions in their sexual act, and they don't mean what they're saying, and they're not saying what they mean, or worse, are trying to cancel out intentionally what the act means, then it becomes a blatant contradiction of their wedding vows. Be honest. Please be honest. Is an intentionally sterilized act of intercourse between a husband and a wife, does this image God's free, total, faithful, fruitful love, or does it not? Don't be afraid to answer that question honestly. Love and the demands of love hurt. If we don't think love involves suffering, we have not spent much time looking at a crucifix. When we understand that the church's teaching on sexuality is not a downer, but is meant to uphold our great dignity as men and women. It's meant to uphold the true meaning of love that we're all looking for. It's meant to help us realize the difference between the real million dollar bill and the counterfeit. It all makes sense. The church's teaching against contraception, I predict, in our lifetime, will be vindicated on a global basis. Because the acceptance and embrace of contraception in our culture is at the root of the culture of death. Am I saying this to wag a finger at anybody? Absolutely not. You have probably never even heard this before. And so I beg your forgiveness, whatever it's worth. I'm not a priest, I'm not a bishop, but for whatever it's worth, if you are hearing this teaching for the first time today, I beg your forgiveness. It's an absolute tragedy if that is the case. But I am not here to wag a finger at you. I'm here to call you, to invite you to be not afraid of the demands of love because only true love can fulfill you truly. What did Jesus say from, from the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Men and women mostly, mostly just don't know what they're doing when they use contraception. They just don't know. But here's what they're doing. Here's what they're actually saying. Knowingly or unknowingly, this is what their body says when they use contraception. They're saying, I prefer the momentary pleasure of a sterilized orgasm. Excuse my frankness, but let's be real. I prefer the momentary pleasure of a sterilized orgasm over the opportunity of participating in the inner life of the Trinity. To which I respond, Bad choice! But do you think if men and women knew that's what they were choosing, do you think they would continue to choose it? I don't think so. I think only the most hardened of hearts 
And there are very few people who are just absolutely hardened of heart. Only a very few, if they knew that, would continue to do it. I want to close with a little story. A friend of mine moved to this country from Czechoslovakia, and he didn't speak a word of English. Guess where he learned the English language? He was a construction worker. You can imagine what he learned about the English language on a construction site. And here's how he learned the English language. He would go to his job and he would point at things. He's this, what's this, what's this? And they'd say hammer. And so he had a little recorder in his pocket and he'd say in his recorder, hammer. Then he'd go home at the end of the day and he'd look up every word in the dictionary. That's how he learned the English language. Well, there was this expression being tossed around the construction site. You can imagine some of what they might be saying, but one of the favored ones was, you son of beach. And so he recorded in his little recorder, son of beach. And he went home and he looked this up in the dictionary. Son, S-U-N, he looked up. Of beach, B-E-A-C-H, he looked up. He actually thought this was a cordial expression. That you are wishing someone sun on the beach. The day he met his pastor. His pastor's welcoming him into the parish. He gave him a big hug and Peter says to him, I love you, you son of beach. Now, what is my point in all this? If you were a bystander, seeing what was going on when my friend Peter said to his pastor, you son of beach, would the loving thing be to do, oh, I mean, it's an innocent error. I mean, clearly, he was innocent, was he not? Entirely innocent. Would the loving thing be to do, oh, he's innocent, so we'll just keep him in his error. That's fine. I know he's innocent. Is that the loving thing to do? Or is the loving thing, if you really had concern for this guy, would be to pull him aside and say, Peter, let me tell you what that really means. You don't condemn him. You don't say, you stupid idiot, do you know what you said? No, you just pull him aside and say, let me show you what that really means. That's what I hope I've done for you today. I didn't come here to wag a finger at anybody. I don't care where you've been, what you've done. I have got my own laundry list of sins. But I hope today, maybe you didn't know what you were really saying. Maybe as an unmarried person, you've been in a sexually active relationship. You didn't know that you were supposed to be renewing wedding vows. Now you do. Maybe you didn't know that contraception is a contradiction of the very meaning of your wedding vows. Now you do. If today you have heard the Lord's voice, harden not your hearts. Many of you are probably saying, okay, if we're going to give up contraception in our marriage, does that mean we have to have 1,500 kids? Let me ask you a question. What could you do 
If you had a serious reason to avoid a pregnancy in your marriage, what could you do that would not violate your wedding vows? As far as I see, everybody in this room is doing it right now. <laughs> Abstain! Abstaining from sex is not a violation of your wedding vows. Indeed, throughout the course of married life, you might have many reasons to abstain, and abstaining can itself be an act of love. What if one of you is sick? You might want to renew your wedding vows through intercourse. You have a valid reason to abstain. In fact, it would be the loving thing to abstain, and it would be the unloving thing not to abstain. Maybe it's after childbirth. You might want to renew your wedding vows through intercourse, but you have a good reason to abstain, and in fact, it's the loving thing to do. Maybe you're at the in-laws in their thin walls. And maybe you have a good reason to avoid a pregnancy. You have a good reason to abstain. That's the very principle of natural family planning. Please, get the resources here. Learn about natural family planning. Contact your pastor, your, your, your parish. Find out about natural family planning. Go take a class. Learn. If you live the truth of this stuff, you will fulfill the very meaning of your being and existence. Be not afraid of the demands of love. They will lead you, if you follow them, like a rocket ship, they will launch you into eternity. Don't live with your engines pointed at the ground. It will lead you nowhere. I can say with sincerity, even though I don't know you personally, that I love each of you. And I desire for you a peace of God's own joy in learning to love as He loves. Be not afraid of the demands. Be not afraid of the challenge. Take up that challenge, and God willing, we will see one another face to face in the marriage of the Lamb for all eternity. May Jesus Christ be praised now and ever and forever. Amen. We hope you were inspired by this podcast, and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our free Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know, family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, Please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, all we ask for is help covering our materials costs. So please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted, so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. And now, here's a short preview of our Rosary and Divine Mercy Chaplet, the most popular rosary according in the history of the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For an increase in the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, 
and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.